two, as we finish up um, this second chapter in our book study in the book of First Peter, I was looking, I believe it's been about 15 weeks since we um, had started First Peter, so we're cruising as we get to the end of chapter two today. God has blessed us with an amazing, amazingly beautiful uh, weekend to celebrate Memorial Day. Um, if you have served or are presently serving our country in the armed forces, would you be so kind as to stand so we can simply recognize you? I know there are some. Let's give those who serve. going to do this the whole 30 minutes. <laughs> Mr. Roto, I did not know that. We'll have to talk later on. Um, you know, we, we pause for the weekend and we remember those who served. We especially remember those who gave their lives for the freedom that we enjoy. And there is no, there is no greater single focus than to think of the one. Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life for our own freedom, freedom from sin, freedom of um, being adopted into God's family, and freedom to know that we are securely in his hands, that we live with a purpose, that we enjoy eternity, look forward to eternity with him, and yet have such a message of hope through the gospel. What a great weekend to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's bow our heads as we go into our text. There's a lot here, so we want to move through, um, asking for God's help and guidance as, Lord willing, our minds, our hearts are opened to hear from him. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, we are so grateful for the sacrifice that you gave, an absolute perfect, sinless life tortured uh, with great brutality and pain. Lord, you took every affliction that we deserve because of our own brokenness and sinfulness. And you bore the wrath of our Heavenly Father. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation that is offered through Jesus. Father, I thank you for uh, the ordaining of the local church and for what you have called us to, to do and who you have called us to be. And Father, I would pray as we now have our heads bowed in your presence with your word open before us that your spirit would, would, would work, would quicken, would awaken, would speak to us. God, I would ask even at this moment that your spirit would fill me so that my words are your words and yours alone. We do pray for our community. I think of the loss of this um, young boy um, and young woman uh, that were killed in this accident this past weekend. I pray, Lord, for families that mourn. God, I would ask that we would continue to seek to offer the hope that is only in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask, Lord, that you guide us now as we uh, seek to hear from you. We ask this. 
the strong name of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. Um, Having been born in Pennsylvania, but our family served the Lord up in Nova Scotia, we would make that, uh, that trip. We would travel several times a year between Pennsylvania and Nova Scotia, and about halfway is Maine. And we spent a lot of time in Maine. Maine is a beautiful, beautiful state, the state my wife, Wendy, was born in. Um, and we spent a lot of time around Acadia National Park, Bar Harbor area. If you've ever been, they're absolutely beautiful. And we used to hike a lot of the trails in that park. And for the most part, we're like horrible hikers. We never really knew where we were going. We were always constantly lost, always. Like, where does this end up? We have no idea. And, and I remember um, after several years having done that, we were given the opportunity, my brother and I, to, to fly over that area. And uh, the first time I ever flew in my entire life, it was a little tiny four-seater, and it was a retired Air Force major that was the pilot. And so we were up in this little tiny plane, and we flew over Acadia National Park and Bar Harbor, absolutely beautiful. And I remember just being terrified. And he's banking, and my face is pressed up against the the glass. I'm just, I'm just horrified through this experience, and yet from that view, and I remember after we landed, I'm like, that is so cool. I'd love to do that again. But it's amazing that when you're up there and you look down, there's the trails we used to hike, and there's the mountain, there's the beach, and it all made sense when you're up high. We, we talked last week, that's what Scripture does for us. That's what the Word of God does. Um, at, at times, in the midst of it, we're kind of like, what exactly? But, but when we stay in this, all of life begins to make sense. It begins to bring everything into perspective through the Word of God. That's what the author here, First Peter, Peter is doing as he writes this letter to us in First Peter. From a, from a high vantage point, he gives to us a clear perspective of how we are to live our lives, how we are and why we are to follow Jesus as our ultimate example. Now understand that Peter's exhortation throughout these last couple of weeks have been about our submission or the need for us to be submissive to those that are in authority. Now, now please understand, this is not something that that Peter's just sitting around one day, and he thought up. Kind of was bored, and so he came up with this idea, or he dreamed it up, or, or conjured it, or, or figured it out. It's, it's nothing like that. The Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write these words with a clear Christological foundation. And he tells us, but he also shows us, why is it that we should live our lives the way that we're called to live our lives. Why is it that we should live our lives following Jesus? Why should we follow in the footsteps of Him? We broke our text up. It actually, in its entirety, is 18 through 25. And we broke up a little bit. And we're going to concentrate today on 21 um, uh, through 25. So follow along as I read our text this morning from, from verse 21 through the end of chapter 2, verse 25. This morning, here it is. For to this you have been called, 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit, any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Four points I want to give to you this morning. Four things in particular I want you to notice about the Lord Jesus Christ. As we follow every day, we wake up every day and follow in his footsteps. The first one is this. Jesus was righteous. The way I describe it is that he was perfectly perfect. There there has been and there will never be anyone like that. Now, when we think, when we pause, when we stop on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the fact that that the God-man, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, we cannot fully comprehend that. It's beyond what we can can understand entirely with finite minds. And so there, 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 there forces us, it, it demands. We rest with an element of faith. Look at these words in verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, just think about those words, no sin. Now, how far is that from you and I? From the time that we are just little, little guys growing up, we come out, okay, and we are screaming to get what we want. And we don't stop. And we want everyone around us constantly, what? At our beck and call, we'll make life miserable from this high. Give me what I want now. That's, that's, how, that's our lives. And we grow up and we get sent off to school and we, we argue and fight with our friends. They're our friends and we can't get along with them all the time. We go to school and, and the teacher hands us an assignment and we roll our eyes at that assignment and we sigh. Didn't we do this already? We come home and we're supposed to have that, that quiz or that test that we failed or flunked and we're supposed to show it to our moms and dads to sign it and, and maybe our brother could sign it for us, right? Or our sister. That's us. We grow up, and we fuss and we fume over our bosses and the unrealistic expectations that are placed upon us. Our lives, we are steeped and we are saturated in sin. And yet, in the midst of that, there comes this one. He committed no sin. We studied earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1 
You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. Wait, wait a minute. I thought silver and gold were pretty cool. Aren't they the best that we have here? No, no. but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. The blood of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. John chapter 19 and verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. 600 years prior to the time that Pilate spoke those words, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Our our lives, we come out wrecked by sin and entering this world was this one, this one who knew no sin. He was righteous. Jesus was perfectly perfect when you utter the name Jesus as a testimony of His great grace in your life. Understand the one that you're uttering is perfectly perfect, the only one. Who's righteous secondly, Jesus was reviled. But He did not revile in return. It says that in the first part of verse 23. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. Now, when we hear this word revile, this is what it means. It it speaks about piling up abusive language against you. To revile is, is a verbal, okay, it's a piling up of the worst, nasty, most abusive language against you. Now, you and I were raised with this idea, this this little jingle that 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 we that rhymes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a big fat lie that is. You and I can go to the exact place. We know exactly. We can smell it when we were there. And we heard abusive language from someone. Perhaps for you it was a parent or a teacher or a coach or a sibling. Someone said something that was absolutely horrific. You know it. You remember it. You can can hear the tone of it. To, To revile, it's this idea of speech. It is speech that is intentionally designed to hurt. To revile is speech that is intentionally designed to draw blood and to cut. It is vicious verbal attacks carried 
with an intent of literally destroying one's character. How powerful is that? Now understand, to revile does not mean that someone is saying mean things against you because you've done something wrong. It's not speaking about that. It, It speaks about the fact that someone is saying mean things against you and you've done nothing wrong. That's that's the description. If and when that does happen, don't don't ever think for even a moment that you are alone. If anyone suffered this, it was Jesus. And we are what? We are to follow his example of how to handle. We are to follow in his footsteps. Remember the gospel accounts? I think particularly of Mark chapter 14 and 15, which records the, the onslaught of insults and hatreds. You know what happens, and we do need to pause on the crucifixion and the beating and the torture and the nails being driven, but long before the slapping and the hitting and the whipping, long before the spitting... There was the verbal onslaughts, the open mocking to the degree that if you were to hear it, it would probably make you nauseous that people are saying the things that they're saying against that one. The intent to mock, taking a crown of thorns and pressing it, yes, there is pain, but they're mocking his kingship. Oh, you're the king? You're the king? Well, let's bow to you, O oh king, as they place a reed in his hand. Mocking scepter of power. As they wrap him in a purple and a royal robe. Mocking and making fun. The slander and the curses. Exactly what Jesus endured. And yet when he was reviled, get this, he did not revile in return. How does that happen? How do we do that? God, how do you control our mouth and our lips from responding? You understand that Jesus simply understood the big picture. He was simply obedient and submissive to his father's will and his father's wisdom. Today, when you are called, and you will be called at some point, if you have not already, to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. Perhaps it's from those that are in authority over you that Peter is speaking specifically that you and I need to be in submission to. When you endure sorrow and you suffer unjustly, let me ask you this. Let the Holy Spirit rest on your heart with this question. How do you respond? When you're reviled. What is your response? There, there for some reason is, is an immediate. In our, in our member, we grow up, okay, in sin. We are steeped and wrecked in sin. Someone reviles me? What is my response? To be absolutely silent and feel, no, I, I generally have an answer for them. That's, that's not, that's, that's the flesh. We can yell and we can kick and fight and argue. We can what? Worry. 
can be disobedience. I, I hope this morning that you look and learn how Jesus Christ responded. I think of my dad when he shares his testimony with me. My dad entered the, the Navy, joined the Navy right out of high school. He was 18 years old. And of course, you know, it's not just a job, but it's an adventure. And you head off to port after port after port. And, and, and after a little stint at home in, in Washington, he went out and, and he was enjoying all of the lifestyle, the wild lifestyle. And, and he befriended a man on his ship. He was actually an officer. My dad was enlisted. And then there was Lieutenant Steve Simpson was his name. And generally, officers don't really fraternize with enlisted men. For some reason, they struck up a, a friendship. And, and Steve Simpson was not a believer, but he understood the truth of the gospel clearly. He took my dad under his wing, and he actually shared with him the gospel, not even being a believer himself. Steve Simpson actually led my dad to the Lord before he himself gave his own life to the Lord. What was amazing is that when, when dad became a Christian, he immediately changed his lifestyle. You can't continue to live the way that you used to. If you're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, your life is going to look different than it used to. So he would stop going out with the other guys when they got into ports and, and the other guys. What is typical? Same thing happens to you. They make fun of you. Oh, what? You're so spiritual now. Bobby, why don't you come with us? Come on. You know that you're fun. You know you want to be there. My dad's response initially were attacks. And they, they, they would revile him and he would revile in return. You're, you're nasty to me. You cut on me. You criticize me. He'll give it right back. And he realized the Holy Spirit, in a sense, convicted his life. You can't respond like that. You can't fight back. Eventually he learned, as we all need to learn, to, to kind of keep our mouths shut. What I love is that my dad actually eventually learned enough respect from those around him that he has, on several occasions, actually have the, the, the programs that my dad had the privilege of leading Bible studies on the ship with other men, with church services. Because he had earned the respect eventually. Why? Because he had to learn a difficult lesson. You and I need to learn that same lesson. When you are reviled, just like Christ, we are not to revile in return. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was reviled. Thirdly, Jesus was resolved. He was settled. He was resolved. He showed this resolve by trusting in his heavenly father. We, we need this exact thing. We, we need to have a sense of simply being resolved in life. In the latter part of verse 23, it says that he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In a sense, Jesus got it. He got what you and I need to do. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know what I think of? I have, as, as many of you, I'm sure, do, dads, husbands. I have my chair in, in, in our living room. And that chair is reserved exclusively for me, with the exception of when we have home group and Bill Stankowitz takes my chair. I'm not allowed to sit in my chair. But it's, 
It's that, you know it. It's like, and it was like picked out, like to fit. And there's a reading lamp. And I put my coffee cup there. And it's positioned that I can look out the window at the ridge. It's not, and, and you know how and you push a little, you pull the little thing and your feet go up. And it's like, oh, I rest here. I just, I just rest here. I relax here. That, and, and, not, and not in any way taking anything from, from Christ, but I, I see when he entrusts himself, I, I see Jesus and figuratively, he's, he's, his feet are up, he's resting in, in what he knows. He is certain all hell may break loose. He is certain I can trust. And I know for certain excuse me, that my heavenly Father is in control. Excuse me. That's what Jesus is doing here. We read this phrase, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He he understands that everything is entirely in the hands of his heavenly Father. Now, in in a sense, I, I know that, I understand in, in, in concept, this idea of God's sovereignty. But why is it that, that I then worry the way that I worry at times? Why is it that I wake up in the middle of the night and, and, and I can't sleep because I'm concerned that maybe not something's not working according to my plan or I've got to do something in order to make sure that... No! Just like Jesus... He continues to entrust himself. He rests entirely in his father's justice. No need to reciprocate. No, t- no need to, to retaliate. <coughs> Excuse me. No need to fight off or fight back. No need to argue. None of this, do me wrong, I'll do you wrong. There, there, there's none of that. Hurt me, I'll hurt you. No, it doesn't exist. Not with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a hard thing to do. You know this is a hard thing to do. I'm, I'm oftentimes, and I keep Fox's Book of Martyrs. I've, I've read it repeatedly, and we need to read Fox's Book of Martyrs to understand what our forefathers, our spiritual forefathers, went through, what they endured. But you realize that as many times as they silently, and they took it, were led to the stake to burn or were tortured. There were times it didn't always work like that. There's a story of, of one of the great martyrs, Perpetua, a faithful woman who had been faithful, following the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and she was condemned to death. And as she was being led with her brothers and sisters in Christ, led to be executed, she, she, walked, she walked in front of their judge. His name was Hilarinius. And in that very moment, as as they are being condemned, she shouted back in return, Thou judgest us, but God will judge you. It's true, but it's not necessary. And a testimony, the amazing, godly, faithful, who, who had so much more strength and resilience, and even in that moment, shouting back, We don't need to shout back. We rest and we trust. Entrusted or committed himself, another translation, to the vindication of his father. 
Do you realize that the word entrusted or committed, it, it means to hand over to someone to keep. If you hand something over to someone, it means it's not yours anymore. You hand what? Your life over. You can't grab it back any longer. Can you this morning hand over in its entirety every single area of your life? Can you have that kind of resolve? Can you really trust that much through the ministry of the Holy Spirit? You certainly can. Fourthly and finally, Jesus is the only one who could redeem you. Jesus is the only one who could redeem you, that that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then there's this phrase that's underlined in my Bible, by his wounds, we are healed. I, I, I don't know, I don't know if there is a greater message that is found in the entirety of Scripture than, than these words. By his wounds, we are healed. Healed. It's this idea of restoring, of returning, of repairing, of redeeming. Although we had once fallen into sin, we can be lifted out of that sin all as a result of what Jesus Christ has done for us at great cost. But ultimately we know, we know ultimately that Jesus has won. Adrian Rogers says it like this, it is though God is playing a great game of checkers with the nations of this world. And the day will come that he will move his son into king's row and say, crown him. And I love that picture. He didn't, he didn't bear his sins. There were none. He bore our sins. And what is that? Our sins are so much, even from this age, are so much. It's like that bill that you can never pay. It's too big. Jesus steps in and says, I'll pay that for you. Because it's so far beyond you. It's so far above you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, and I think I left the quote for you in in your insert. God has done this astounding thing. He has punished your sin and mine there in Christ. Our guilt has been removed. That obstacle, that barrier has been taken away. God is satisfied. His wrath has been manifested upon the head of His only begotten, innocent Son. God allowed Christ's mistreatment make an escape for us, to make a way of hope. When you identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, when you, when you offer your life, you receive the full payments of your sins through Christ. But you realize that if you refuse, you will pay for it for all of eternity. During the height of the Vietnam War, there were, there, were, there were anti-war demonstrations all over the country. There was one particular protest raging across a particular university. It was at Princeton, and there was a person that, that held up a sign, and the sign said, 
nothing is worth dying for. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so glad that that wasn't true for Jesus. I'm so glad personally that Jesus saw you and me. He was willing to die for us. We have to remember that. I am, I am so glad that God is sovereign over all. I am so glad that God created you and me. I'm so glad that, that God saw us. So thankful that even when, as Adam and Eve rebelled against God's holiness, as you and I are born in sin and rebel against God's holiness, I'm so glad that God came to earth as a man and that man was Jesus, and that Jesus lived an absolutely perfect and sinless life. That God died on that cross to pay the price of the sins that, that you commit and I commit. I'm so thankful because of that price that, that God looks at us and He says, I forgive you through what my Son has done. I'm so thankful that God didn't stay dead, but God rose from the dead, that God is alive today. And I'm so thankful that God gives to us hope to share with every single person that we bump into and run into and cross paths with. That we can live lives by giving our entire life to Jesus. And look at this last line here. Finally, it says that we see in Christ's example, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. I don't know if you pick up on it or not, but there's a, there's a major change here. There's a major change of focus. It's been what? It's been all about Christ. He committed no sin. He was reviled. He did not revile in return. He continued trusting himself. He bore our sins. By his wounds were healed. It's perfect. And now this last verse, it's almost like, what, what is this doing? It speaks all about us. It shines a light on us. And guess what? It's not that perfect. There's this last line. It shines a light on us, and it's not that pretty. You were straying like sheep. I know that they're cute. Like some of you are cute and adorable and fuzzy and fluffy. But sheep are dumb. They're just plain dumb. Sheep are helpless. Sheep wander constantly. My, my buddy, Pastor Nathan, Pastor Nathan Purdy from across the roads. He, he's from Northern Ireland and his family used to raise sheep and he talked about the fact that they were constantly wandering. They were constantly lost. They're always lost. They always were breaking through the fence. They always had to go find them and go bring them back. That's us. That's our community. Wandering and lost. Last Sunday, we stood here, I stood here, and we prayed together as a church for, for what? For the families of those two young people that were killed. I, I did not know them. And I just said, God, just help us to be able to minister in any way. Be especially close to them. The very next day, I got a call, and I didn't realize that somebody who knew someone who knew someone and there's a connection would would would, would we have a, a memorial service for the 18 year old boy 
And so on Wednesday, we gather here, another group, and we encourage you again on this Wednesday to pray for our community. We gathered here and we pray, God, give us wisdom as we minister. As Matt already shared on Thursday night, this place was filled with young people. That, that's our community. That's, that's, we have got to find opportunity in our own lives to offer them the hope to introduce them to the shepherd who goes out and he finds and he seeks and he draws unto himself. I met many people. I don't remember all the ones that I met, but I told them, and I want to remind you that we we are going to be praying for them. JC I met and Jen and Sebastian and Sherry and Susan and Suzanne and Sarah and Dominic and Curtis and Zachary and Rain and Mariah and Jay, and these names were coming to me in the middle of the night. I woke up and I wrote them down. That's why I can barely read what I saw on my paper. But these are ones that we have a responsibility to introduce them to the shepherd. The one who went and found us. The one who rescued us. Jesus does not just talk about changing lives. He actually does it. Jesus does not just hope to get results. He he gets results. Lives are actually transformed. Jesus leads and guides and nourishes and protects like any good shepherd should. We have a responsibility to share with them the hope, the message of that good shepherd. Jesus was righteous. He was perfectly perfect. Jesus was reviled, but he did not revile in return. Jesus was resolved as you and I need to be. He showed it by trusting and resting in his heavenly Father. And Jesus is the only one who can redeem. We know that he is the shepherd, and we are so grateful for the fact that he sees us. May we understand the role and the responsibility that has been given to us as followers of Jesus to keep him before our focus, in front of our eyes, and to follow. Father, as we commit ourselves to you and commit this day and the next day, this next week to you, God, I would ask that we would see you, we would would keep you in our sights at all times, that before a word comes into our mouth, that you would guard our mouth and close it needs to be closed, but God, you would also open it when it needs to be opened. Thank you, Lord, so much that you are the perfect example for us. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that exists in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would have boldness, but we would also have clarity and discernment as we seek to follow you. We ask this in Christ's name. Stand with us, please, as we close.